We're in our fourth week of, uh, of our series we called Shape Up, where we're taking a look at just some simple, basic shapes that can help us more clearly define what discipleship looks like and who we are in Jesus Christ. These shapes are a great way to not only explain to someone what God is doing in your life, but to possibly direct them into what God might be doing in theirs as well. And so today I'm going to introduce you to another shape. I'm going to introduce you to the invitation and challenge matrix. It's a very, very simple grid that contains four quadrants. Now, let me show of hands. Let me see if you've got your hand out today. Let me see that. Okay, if you're missing one, raise your hand. We want to put one in your hand. Everybody got one? Well, how'd you get here at 1030 and didn't even get one, Will? <laughs> My man. I'm going to come down here just because I like it. All right. So the invitation challenge matrix. Let me explain what you have going on there. In the top right side, in the top and on the right side, you have um, what I would consider the high points of the grid, okay? And then on the left and bottom side, you have the low points of the grid, okay? And we're going to work through this, and I'm going to show you how it works. If you have your Bibles, I want you to join me in Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. And while you're finding that, I want you to know, I want to emphasize this to you. It's not about the shapes, all right? We are not pressing the shapes. What we're doing is we're using simple shapes to help you press into deeper relationship with God, all right? It's a way just to kind of calculate where you are versus where, well, versus, it's a way of calculating where you should be versus where you are. Maybe where you might want to be versus where you are is a better way to say it. Mark chapter 8, are you there? Jesus was meeting with his disciples. And he had explained to his disciples that many things were about to occur. And he said that he was going to be uh, tried by the chief priests and the scribes, and, and then he was going to be rejected, and he was going to lose his life. But on three days, three days later, he would rise again. He would suffer many things. And he said this really plainly, Scripture tells us. Scripture also tells us that Peter didn't like what Jesus said. You know, Peter was looking for the Messiah to... to Establish his kingdom here and reign, and he wanted to be part of it. So he didn't like what Jesus said. So get this now. Peter pulls Jesus to the side. Jesus, Peter pulls Jesus to the side and rebukes him, the scripture says. Right? Watch what happens. Verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, everyone say disciples. He rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. We're talking about discipleship today. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them. Man, I just feel the urgency to just back up for a second. Jesus had his twelve. But Jesus looked out across the crowd and he saw many others who 
who is quite possible we're going to enter into a relationship with him. And sometimes, you all, sometimes you just have to call it like it is when you see evil present. Jesus knew that what Peter was about to do or what he had done would be disruptive to his mission. And so he called him out in front of everybody. And sometimes, as followers of Jesus Christ, that is necessary. See, just because we're followers of Jesus Christ doesn't mean that we're to be doormats for people. So Jesus calls it out the way that it is. He says, get behind me, Satan. He said, for you're not set in your mind on the things of God. You've got another agenda, but on the things of men. And calling the crowd to, to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels, the good news, will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? I love the King James says, and lose his soul. Three things jump out at me when I read this passage. The first is this is clearly a call to discipleship. And as I said earlier, and I want to say it again, Jesus looks out, above, out amongst the crowd and he sees both current and future disciples. And so he calls them to himself. It's clearly a, a, a high invitation to, to covenant relationship because Jesus says, I want you to come be with me. He says, come follow me. He said, but to do that, it's going to require something of you. You're going to deny yourself. In other words, to follow me, you're going to have to become selfless. That's the high invitation to covenant relationship. Then he gives a challenge to kingdom representation. He says, you have to take up your cross and follow me. And I love what Luke says, follow me daily. And here's what Jesus is saying. I'm going to set the example for you, but every single one of us have our own cross to bear. Every single one of us have our own individual, unique relationship with the Lord. Right? I mean, I look at some, some followers of Christ, and it looks like they have it easy, and sometimes I wish I could trade their life for mine. But every single one of us have our own crosses to bear. And Jesus said, if you're going to come after me, if you're going to follow me, I want you to come be with me, but you're going to have to become selfless. You're going to have to find your identity in me. You have to take up your cross and you are going to have to follow me. Kingdom representation. I'm going to model it for you and then I'm going to expect you to model what I've shown you. I expect you to do what I do. That's that upper right-hand quadrant. We call that the discipleship quadrant. So it's a quadrant of both high invitation and high challenge. Now let me break some things down for you real quick just because I'd like to do that. A disciple of Christ. What is a disciple? A disciple is a person who is a lifelong student of Christ, learning to be like Jesus in character and to do like Jesus' incompetency or skill. It's a follower. 
It's a disciple. A disciple is simply someone who hangs out with Jesus, learning from Jesus how to be like Jesus. Mm. Okay, man. How many of you have your own private time with God? Let me see your hands. You have your own private time with God. Is there anything sweeter than being in that sweet spot, hanging out with the Savior? Hmm. Hanging out with Jesus, learning from Jesus how to be like Jesus. A disciple refers to someone who doesn't just learn what their teacher knows, but becomes and models the kind of person their teacher is. Growing in both character and competency. That's a disciple. Jesus tells his disciples in John chapter 14, verse 12, he says, whoever believes in me will do. Everybody say do. Whoever believes, everybody didn't say that. This is the participating class today. <laughs> Whoever believes in me will do. Everyone say do. do. Yes, the work that I do and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. This statement here in this, in this text implies three things. First of all, again, it's high invitation to covenant relationship. Whoever believes in me. Whoever embraces who I am and the truth of who I am, whoever accepts me, I give you the promise of relationship and my presence in you. It's about being with me. It's also a high challenge to kingdom responsibility. He said, you will also do the works that I do. That's part of being a kingdom representative. And in the doing is where we find life's purpose and the fulfillment of our purpose. It's doing what God has called us or commanded us to do. Here's the third thing that's evident. It's like Jesus tells us in this passage, he says, listen, I get to work through you. You get to be just like me. And as you aspire to be more like me, you're going to do the things that I do. And, and a matter of fact, greater things are you going to do because I'm going off scene. And when I leave you, I'm going to, I'm going to send the comforter who's going to empower you to do greater things than me. How many of you know we have the Holy Spirit dwelling on the inside of us? Amen. We do. Somebody said, thank you, Jesus. He gets to accomplish his work through us. As disciples of Christ, our lives are lived between two relational realities. First, God is our Father and God is our King. As children of our Father, we have high invitation to relationship with him as children. But as citizens of his kingdom, him being our King, it's also a high challenge for kingdom representation. Both. Both. Covenant relationship. You know, I, I talk a lot about covenant relationship because I, man, I, man, I've entered into relationships that were covenant relationships. And I tell you, if any relationship is difficult, it's covenant relationship. Because that means no matter, no matter what that person does to you, you are still in it with them. 
My, my mentor, Horace Byers, said a long time ago, and the Lord has taken him home. He said, he said listen, man. He said, let me, he saw you talk. let me tell you something, Gregory. We, 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 we're in covenant relationship. Here's what that means. That car out there that you think is yours, that car belongs to me. Watch it. That S-class Mercedes sitting in the garage, that's mine. That belongs to you. I said, I like this relationship. <laughs> what's yours is mine. What's, what's mine is yours. That's covenant relationship. There's two types of covenant relationship. There's bilateral covenant and there's unilateral covenant. These are the two most common types of covenant that we find. Bilateral covenant is where both parties equally share responsibility to carry the covenant out. We find that most often in the Old Testament and even throughout the Bible where we see that this, this covenant, this, this lasting promise and agreement is carried out by a ritual. It's where both sides, both parties who are in the agreement come together and they sacrifice an animal. That's called blood covenant. That's the ritual. They sacrifice the animal and then each part each, each person takes one side of the animal and they lay it down and create a corridor. And then they take blood from both animals and they sprinkle it between the corridor. You guys following what I'm saying? You get the picture? And then what happens is the two parties that agree in this bilateral covenant, they walk through the two dead animals crossing the blood, symbolizing that, that if I break this covenant, be it unto me as it is with these animals. Man, God takes covenant seriously. Why? Listen, is it any wonder that that's why the enemy fights marriage so much? Because I know the old the traditional marriages, you know, uh, I do takes you to be my lawfully wedded husband or wife, to have and a hold from this day forward in sickness and in health, for better or for worse, for richer and poor, till death do us part. Yeah. Right? And so the enemy understands the power of covenant relationships, so he fights against marriage because that is of God and it's, it's a very good indication of what covenant should look like. So, that's the first form of covenant, bilateral. The, the second is unilateral. It's a covenant that's cut between two parties where one party holds the responsibility to ensure that the covenant is kept and carried out. We find this in Genesis chapter 15. I, man, I love this. I, man, Genesis chapter 15, God is dealing with Abraham. He tells Abraham, he says, listen, he says, I want you to cut, I'm going to cut a covenant with you. So he tells Abraham to prepare these animals. And Abraham prepares the animals, you know, and he cuts them in half and he takes them out there. He's prepared to sacrifice them. And watch this now, unilateral covenant. God's responsible for everything. God causes a deep sleep to fall on Abraham. So Abraham never has the opportunity to carry out his part lest, lest he thinks that he has something to do with carrying out this covenant. God causes this deep sleep to, call, to fall on him and Abraham now just becomes the beneficiary of the providence of God and the provision of God, unilateral covenant. We see that again too in the New Testament. Because this type of covenant is what God has given us through relationship with Jesus Christ. 
As disciples of Christ, we have a new covenant written in his blood, in the blood of the Lamb. Hmm. And so now, in this covenant, we live with the recognition that, everybody say, see, listen, I have my notes here, but I had them backwards. It's the first time for everything. That's the first time I've ever done that. We live under the recognition that God, the God of all creation, the giver of all life, the creator of all things, the, the, the one through whom every good and perfect gift comes from, this same God is our Father. And everything that I need in covenant relationship is found in him and him alone. And he wants us to find our identity in that fact that he is our father and that he is good. And then as I carry out my kingdom responsibilities, I have the benefit of his wisdom, I have the benefit of his power. And as I focus on living a Christ-centered life, my father enables me to live both as a child and as a citizen of my king's kingdom. Wow. And the more I press into that, the more I press into relationship with Jesus, the more like my father I begin to look. So the other day, my father had come down from Fairbanks. Down from Fairbanks? Yeah. He come down from Fairbanks. And he was here for about a week, and, and uh, he, was, he was leading this convention, and, and, uh, and there wasn't very much time between the sessions. And so, so my father takes a couple of the delegates, and he takes them to McDonald's. <laughs> to McDonald's, right? So I'm having a conversation with my dad. I said, Dad, McDonald's? Really? He said, boy, I'm 82 years old. I don't need you to lecture me about McDonald's. <laughs> I said, all right then, Dad. Go and have your fish sandwich. So, so, so he's in McDonald's, right? And one of you walk up to them. Somebody, I'm not going to call any names. Michelle Day. <laughs> Walks up to my father in McDonald's and, and says, you know, excuse me, um, are you Greg McCormick's dad? <laughs> my dad, my dad's, he's learned, he's like, <laughs> Why you ask? <laughs> and so Michelle, you know, continues to tell him who she is and all of that. And she says, you, he looks just like you or you look just like him. Listen, I'm going to tell you something. My father is the godliest man that I know. And if I, could, if I can just be half, if I can just be just a, a little portion of what my father is in terms of his life before the Lord. I, man, I'd be happy with that. Why? Because my father looks like his heavenly father. Yeah. I want to look like my heavenly father. Yeah. And the further we press into both covenant relationship and kingdom representation, the more like Jesus will begin to look. You guys with me? Kingdom representation, this is important, don't miss this. 
God has a plan to recover all the ground that was lost in the garden at the fall. His plan is to advance his kingdom in this earth by filling the earth with disciples of Jesus Christ. That's his plan. Disciples who understand both covenant relationship and kingdom representation because discipleship is being equipped with both the character and the competencies of Jesus. What is God saying to you right now about that? Come back to that in a minute. We'll look at the other three quadrants. Because on the, on the far right, we've got the discipleship quadrant. And in that quadrant, we have the wisdom of God and the power of God, and we live a Christ-centered life. And the top left quadrant, which by the way, the top right quadrant is both high invitation and high challenge, and the top left quadrant is high invitation and low challenge. Call that the consumer quadrant. High invitation to relationship, no challenge. And here's a quadrant where, where we begin to rely on the wisdom of others. Mm. Man, you know, I don't ever want to become, I'm not pointing fingers at anyone, but I don't ever want to become a church where you believe that you can come and hear me speak and you hear God's voice through me and not seek the voice of God for yourself. I don't ever want to be a church where you come seeking the wisdom of, of what I've studied in Scripture without you seeking the wisdom of Scripture for yourself. Hmm. In the consumer quadrant, we rely on the wisdom of others. We rely on the power of others. It's like, you know, coming to be served. It's like, it's like coming to be served instead of being empowered to serve. And if we're not careful when we're in that quadrant, because all of us have parts of our lives that are in that quadrant, if we're not careful, we'll begin to live a very self-centered life, self-serving. And Jesus nailed that in Mark chapter 10, verse 20, 43, where he says, those who will be great in my kingdom must first learn to serve others. He says, I didn't come to serve or to, to, to be served. I came to serve. And if we're followers of Christ, isn't that what we should be aspiring to be like? To give our life in service to others? Yes? If we're not careful, we can find parts of our lives in the consumer quadrant. The other quadrant is the lower left-hand quadrant is low invitation and low challenge. In that quadrant, you can get bored. And in that quadrant, there's no pressing or persevering required because there is no challenge to covenant relationship, no invitation to covenant relationship, and there is no challenge to kingdom representation. So there's no pressing into wisdom. There's no pressing into the power of God. There's no center because you just kind of, okay, sirrah, sirrah, whatever will be, will be. And if you're not careful, you'll end up living a hopeless life, lukewarm. Jesus says this in Revelations chapter, or John says, no, Jesus said this in Revelation chapter 3, verse 15. He says, I know your works, 
You're neither hot or cold. I would that you be hot or cold, but because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you, I will vomit you, I will spew you out of my mouth. You ever want to sit down to like a hot meal and you just can't wait? I mean, you've been thinking, oh man, this is going to be so good. You know, you go to a restaurant, you order one of your favorite foods, oh, this is going to be so good. You sit down and, and you, you take a bite of the food and it's lukewarm. Now, you know the first thing you want to do is say, man, take this back. Give me some hot food. God doesn't want us to be comfortable and cozy. God doesn't want us to live a boring, apathetic, spiritual life. Hmm. The third quadrant I just did the third quadrant, didn't I? Okay. The fourth quadrant. Man, cutting the holes in my page, just backwards, just got me all messed up. But you guys follow me, right? Yeah. Yes, that's why I love my family, you guys. We are the family. I got all my sisters and me. Y'all don't know that. Some of, that's too old for some of y'all. <laughs> the, the fourth quadrant, the, the bottom right quadrant is low invitation and high challenge. High challenge and low invitation. This is, if we're not careful, this is where we can, can begin to operate in our own wisdom, in our own power. It can become work-centered. It can lead to a legalistic point of view or, or even a self-righteous mentality. Have to be careful of this quadrant because it looks like discipleship because we are busy doing when indeed that's only half the equation because there's also a side of being, all right? In this quadrant is where most churches find the majority of their members. How many of you heard the 80-20 rule where 80% of the people do 20% of the work? No, 20%, yeah. I just wanted to see if y'all was, was awake. That's what it is. Where, okay, forgive me, Lord, forgive me. Where, where 20% of the people do 80% of the work, and what that ends up being is that people end up being stressed out, overworked, overtasked. And if you're not careful, a person could, 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 could come to the conclusion that I am working for Jesus, and it's all about the doing, and there's no being. Help me, somebody. You know what I'm saying? I don't want to be a church where 20% of the people are doing 80% of the work. We don't have to be that kind of church. Now, you would think, this is why I get to be Picasso. Can you guys see it on this side over here? Can you see it now? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Why are y'all laughing? That's not a cross, that's a grid, right? You know, many people think 
Let somebody lay hands on William over there. <laughs> Listen. Paul tells us that being followers of Christ is a process. It's a process. It's an ongoing process of sanctification. That we're to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling before the Lord, which means that we are justified the moment we receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But there is a process that takes place through which we grow more and more like Jesus as we press into what it looks like to be a disciple. And so, and so I don't want you to get lost in thinking that, you know, if you're over here in the consumer quadrant, that you can, if you want to change your life, you can just like jump over here to the discipleship quadrant. Or if you're down here in the board quadrant, you can just kind of jump over here to the discipleship quadrant. Or if you're down here in the, in the stressed out quadrant, you can just jump right up here to the discipleship quadrant. Because it doesn't necessarily happen like that. We are creatures of habit. And I have met people that are so busy doing, so busy working the left side of the circle that they don't focus on the right side of the circle. We're just being. And I've met people that all that just, if I can just be with Jesus, kumbaya, dear Lord. Forget the work part. <laughs> right? I just want to be with my Savior. But it's both in. And so what happens in this process sometimes, if you, think, if you think that you can go right over here from this stress quadrant over here to this discipleship quadrant, it doesn't happen. If you think you can come from this consumer quadrant right over to the discipleship quadrant, it doesn't happen. Instead, what happens is more like what I call the valley of the shadow of death. Somebody said, oh. And here's what I mean by that. You start here, but instead of going over here, it's more like a journey down here through here like this to get to there. How many of you know that if you're so used to just being and being and, and just being, you can get self-focused and then when you, have to, when you have to start doing some things, it can get hard to change your routine. And so most people, when God is working on them in that way, when God is molding them and shaping them and transforming them to push them up into this quadrant of discipleship, they get, they get, they get weary of, of this, this, this process down here. And if you're not careful, you'll die in the transformation process. That's why I call it the valley of the shadow of death. If you, man, I'm preaching today, huh? <laughs> man, the time got by me. I better wrap this up. So, so the valley of the shadow of death. So if you're picturing the pendulum, remember how it swings to the left and the being and swings to the right and doing? It swings to the left as you press into an abiding relationship. It swings back and to the right. A commensurate amount to this fruit. Remember that? Remember that? If we're not pressing into the discipleship relationship with Jesus, after a while what will happen is that, that that momentum will slow down and we'll find ourselves down there in that valley of the shadow of death. Let God change you and watch God use you. And God is wanting to change us to get us in whatever area we're in, whether it's work or home or, or school or church, it doesn't matter. Wherever we find an aspect of our life in one of these three quadrants, the Holy Spirit is pushing us to become more and more like Jesus every day. 
Melissa, could you come to the piano? Let me challenge you with something. I've said this so many times, and I mean it. I want you to, I want you to hear me, and I, 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 I love the fact that almost every time we raise our hands here and ask this question, everyone is a follower of Jesus Christ, but being a follower of Christ and just being in covenant relationship with him, family, is not enough. There's kingdom responsibilities that God has called each one of us to, and listen, he's equipped each one of us to handle what it is that he's called us to do. Stand with me. And so I want to challenge you today to begin to consider what God may be saying to you about your life, an aspect of your life outside of that upper right quadrant of discipleship where you're pressing into the character and the competencies of Jesus, where you're learning how to be a disciple of Christ and do what God has called you to do. And as a church, I'm reminded of the passage of Scripture where Jesus makes this statement. He says, by this will all men know that you are my disciples because you have love one for another. We should love each other enough to be checking on each other. We should love each other enough to be deep enough in relationship where I can call you on your stuff. You can't call me on mine because you're too young. But you, but you can call me on mine. No, you could if God told you to do that. You guys with me? Yeah. Press. Press into an abiding relationship. Press into to become more and more like Jesus in both character and competency and watch God shape your life and others' lives through you. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you that your word is forever settled in heaven. Thank you that I'm just the messenger and it came to me first. You stepped on my toes and pricked my heart many times this week. I pray you do the same for my brothers and sisters. I don't want to presume anything. As we close our service today, if you're here and maybe you haven't ever embraced the saving grace of Jesus Christ and you don't know what it really looks or feels like to be in covenant relationship with God, I mean, listen, don't leave here without giving your life to Jesus Christ. Don't leave here without surrendering your will to his. And I promise you, your life will never be the same. And you'll get to spend eternity in heaven with him. Every head bowed, every eye closed. If you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and today's that day for you, I want you to slip your hands up. Father, I thank you so much for my brothers and sisters. I thank you 
for how you're using this church and how you will, you will even, in a greater way, expand our territory and use this church to further your kingdom, to reach the lost and the hurting, because every relationship that is reconciled advances your kingdom just a little more. Thank you for using us to do that. Help us to press into being more like you and doing more of the things that you've done and are doing in our lives, in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. Tim's gonna